mama I don't wanna be no doctor I'd rather do nothing at all I feel like whenever I try shit It's like I'm just destined to fall I know, I know Welcome, 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 welcome Uh, We're here with Sunrise Movement Baltimore Uh, Go ahead and introduce yourself so everybody can get the names Hi everybody, I'm Kiana. I'm with Sunrise Movement Baltimore. I've been a part of the movement for a few months and I'm really excited to be here. And my name is Evelyn Hammond. I've been involved in Sunrise Movement Baltimore for about a year and a half now. And my name is James Duffy. I recently joined Sunrise Movement um, and I'm helping out specifically with local politics. And, then we and got... we're all on our political team um, and focus on local issues in Baltimore City. Okay, and then everybody knows me and Ebenezer, and then we also got we got Sam with us today on the uh, on I'm the a newbie. Yeah, first time. Newbie to the <laughs> podcast. But um, Hello and welcome. Thank you so much. I guess uh, the first question I had, I guess just give everybody a little background for Sunri- uh, what Sunrise Movement is um, for those who are unfamiliar. Um, so we are a movement of young people across the United States uh, working to fight climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process. We're organizing for a Green New Deal primarily at the federal level, but we also know that it needs to be built at state and local levels as well. And we know that a Green New Deal is really the only plan that's been put forward to address the intersecting crises of climate catastrophe, racial inequality, and economic inequality at the scale necessary to tackle all of these problems. Okay, and then you guys are you guys are the Baltimore chapter. So Sunrise Movement is like a, a national a national movement, um, and this is specifically the Baltimore chapter. I know there's there's what about five, six, seven other other chapters in Maryland, correct? Yes, um, a lot of them are associated with universities. Um, I think we're the only one that's just based out of like a town. I think most of the other ones are connected to a university. Does that sound right to you, Evelyn? I think there's Howard I think County. There's, uh, yeah, Howard, Howard County, there's Frederick, um, but I think Howard County is primarily like organized around a high school as well. Um, but we also have some friends who are in the Howard County Hub who also um, organize with us here in Baltimore. <laughs> Especially like now with COVID and pretty much all of our organizing being online, it's a lot easier, frankly, to connect with uh, people who are a little bit outside of our immediate local area. Yeah, that, it definitely is. It definitely is. The uh, COVID's made uh, these virtual podcasts are a lot easier to uh, set up as as far as, um, and we can also get get a wider variety of guests as well. Um, but so as far as the movement is concerned, when when did the when did the actual movement itself start? Also, when did the Baltimore chapter um, start as well? So the Baltimore chapter started in December 2018. The movement really uh, was founded in 2016, 2017. I know that um, the founders were doing some organizing um, around the 2016 election. Um, we're frankly like really preparing for a Clinton win. We wanted to uh, push Hillary Clinton to make bold uh, climate action a central part of her presidency and really switch gears uh, under the Trump administration and really just exploded in popularity um, after the sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office. Uh, 
after the 2018 midterms. And um, yeah, that's around the time that our hub got started. Yeah, and I read that on the, uh, on the website. <laughs> yeah, you guys. That's how I first found out about Sunrise. <laughs> yeah, that was the uh, that was like the key point from the uh, I was reading just like the Baltimore's movements about Paige. I was that I obviously saw that was a key movement from uh, at least for Baltimore's startup. Um, so like, what are the what are the main issues? Um, you guys are trying to tackle now in Baltimore? So one of the big ones that we're trying to tackle is um, zero waste. So trying to transition Baltimore away from the linear waste stream that we have now where everything ends up in either the incinerator and the landfill to more of like a, a cyclical cycle where things are being recycled, reused, um, composted. That's one big one. Evelyn, are there any others you want to speak to? And James, you want to hop in? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I guess we're here to, you know, just really talk about environmental injustice in Baltimore. And um, I'm here to talk about, like, the huge lead crisis that's in our city um, that's disproportionately affecting uh, Black communities and the Black butterfly. Um, like, you know, in neighborhoods like St. Tom Winchester, up to 40% of children have lead poisoning, and that's really not okay. And so definitely here on the political team, um, we, you know, supported Brandon Scott's uh, campaign for mayor and hopefully helped uh, deliver him his primary and uh, general victory. Um, and he really, like, made, you know, tackling the lead paint crisis um, a huge part of his campaign. And, uh, yeah, we hope to really hold him accountable to that. Yeah, I know that's yeah, been... Okay. Oh, no, go ahead, please. You go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, um, and, you know, my background is in, like, environmental studies and things like that, so looking at specifically um, issues of, like, urban forcing and how these different initiatives can tackle, like, multiple problems at once, so how can we, you know, innovate and um, rebuild a lot of communities that have been historically marginalized with the same goal of, you know, helping to alleviate a lot of environmental issues, so things like access to clean water um, and talking about, you know, access to green spaces and um, the resources of the bay and things like that. Yeah, I think I think it definitely a lot of the problems, a lot of a lot of the wow. singular problems you can focus on. They don't just fix themselves; they also fix things around them. So like like the lead paint crisis. Um, I mean, as far as I've seen that, it's connected to just um, uh, the crime rate because it it, it makes uh, just just how it affects that. And so like if you if you make the environment better, then it seems the crime will go down as well. And obviously that's a, those are two big things that Baltimore has challenges with. Yeah, it seems to me there's so many problems going on in Baltimore City right now. It seems like uh, most mayors were running on the whole program of better opportunities for people within the city and uh, the crime rate and stuff like that. And it almost seems like uh, a lot of the local politicians tend to drown out our environmental issues right here in the city. I was wondering, is there any like local politicians that uh, you guys have gotten support from or you hope to get support from? Um, like I said, you know, we, we endorse Brandon Scott and I feel that we have a pretty good relation, working relationship with him. Um, you know, we really supported him because he frankly is a community organizer um, and he really wants to continue to collaborate with grassroots organizations. Um, that, you know, are really doing the work for um, for justice in Baltimore and, you know, all sorts of different issues. Um, we also endorsed 
Bronca Mueller pause uh, for city council. Um, and unfortunately, she did not win her election. Um, but, you know, we're really excited to see her continue to organize in Baltimore. We're also friends with Ryan Dorsey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we chat a lot with Ryan Dorsey. He supports and he's in line with a lot of the same policies that we support. So one of the things that he wants to do is, you know, take old parking lots and convert them into electric charging stations, um, throw some solar panels over parking garages. So we support all of those types of initiatives and we've worked with him those. Um, we don't officially endorse Mary Pat Clark as a councilwoman. However, she also has a lot of really good stances on environmental issues that up well with sunrise yeah we're, we're currently attempting to get uh get a little solar panel project at, at one of our one of our universities uh, i know i know and this is like super small scale compared to like the parking lot thing you just mentioned but I, I do know that like uh ccbc has done has done that with their parking lots they did that a few years ago they have the whole parking lots covered with like uh panels um all over it so i think i think for for environmental movements, at least, like this is just this is just my unexpert opinion. Uh, I think like one of the biggest challenges is just like it's just getting people to be aware and, and care, and like that and that seems like that seems like that wouldn't be because you know people walk out their front door and they see the challenges right in their face, and th like I think people just accept like that's what life is. You know what I mean? Uh, they don't they don't really know anything any other any difference. Like, yeah. I think a lot of times it's not always clear, like how some of these problems in Baltimore are connected to environmentalism. Like, for instance, the, um, you know, the, Baltimore has one of the highest rates of evictions in the nation. And a lot of people wouldn't consider that as an environmental issue. But when we're looking at this through an environmental justice lens, you know, if people are getting evicted at a high rate, then that also increases the rate of dumping. And when you have trash being dumped everywhere, then that's going to end up in the harbor or that's going to end up in our alleyways. So it's, it's all really interconnected. Um, and the more that we can create policies at a local level that address these interconnected problems, like the more equitable our city is going to be and also the more green our city is going to be. So in that way, we see that, you know, a lot of these racial and economic issues are also actually environmental issues as well. Yeah. That that makes perfect sense because like you, if it's the highest rate, or like one of the higher rates of evictions, that what that also says is that like there's less people who have a reason to be um, uh, invested in their community and like and take a like take a stand and care and like d go out of their way to make sure the community looks good or like is is thriving. You know what I mean? So if they're if the people are constantly on the move on the move uh, home to home, they're not gonna like care to put the time in to their community and, and their street and they're not going to care if the alley's dirty or stuff like that you know what i mean they're not they don't have any any personal wealth invested into the into the area that's what i was going to say i feel like uh, a lot of people don't like see the actual impact of it yet amongst themselves but people like uh say like commercial fishermen or people that uh do crabbing in baltimore they directly see a result of nutrients uh, nitrogen running off into the streams, into the harbor, and creating algae blooms and killing the fish and crabs that they would have sold. So it's economically impacting them. I think the reason so many people seem to be careless about the topic right now is really because it's not in any way affecting them. Or not in a tangible way that they can see, right? Like, 
Mm. I mean, air pollution isn't something that you can readily see until it's really, really bad. You know, like Baltimore does not have great quality air, but you wouldn't know that if you walk outside because on most days it's like, oh, it's cloudy or it's sunny. You know, Mm -hmm. you're not seeing that air pollution. Um, And when in fact it's killing us and leading to one of the highest rates of asthma also in the nation, we have a 40% rate of hospitalizations due to asthma um, compared to the rest of the country where that's 15%. So that's a huge difference. But again, that's not something that people are going to notice when they walk out the door. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I mean, um, with the Rusco incinerator, for example, you can actually see the, the clouds of smoke coming out of the smokestack. Um, but so many people in Baltimore don't really understand that that's really toxic emissions coming from burning trash. In fact, um, some organizers at Free Your Voice and the South Baltimore Community Land Trust, who we know, um, told us that um, the kids at the schools where they organized used to call it the cloud maker. They just thought that um, the incinerator was producing clouds, but it's really just, you know, the the really toxic emissions that those kids are then breathing in, uh, developing asthma and other uh, respiratory issues. I, I read yeah. um, so sad. I read in preparation for this that living close to that incinerator is like living in the house with a smoker. Wow. That's, yes. That's the type of impact. Um, that when I was younger and like still to this day, I still, I mean, I never, I never knew it was a, when I was younger, I didn't know it was a trash incinerator. I mean, I always thought it was just the, the Baltimore town. Like it was always just so pretty to me. Um, I mean, I still like the look of it now. Obviously I don't like what it does, but so if there's, if there's ever a movement to get rid of it, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say keep the, keep the, keep the Baltimore part. Cause I, I just thought it was just, I always thought it just, every time you drive into it, it's just, it, it was just so pretty, but I mean, obviously it's killing people. Yeah, I mean, I think we would be fine with leaving the tower up as long as it wasn't in operation. <laughs> as long as there wasn't actual pollution coming out of it. You know, we can keep a tower that says Baltimore. But the the main problem with the incinerator is that, so this thing was started in 1985. And incinerators, year after year, get more expensive to maintain um, because the con- the pollution controls on them wear out over time. So the costs accumulate, but the actual amount, the, the cost savings you're getting from sending trash there decrease. So it's vastly inefficient in terms of how much money the city is spending on it. And then the other problem is that it's right now it's classified as a renewable energy source, which is problematic in a few ways. In my opinion, the most egregious way it's bad is that it doesn't actually produce that much renewable energy it produces like maybe a fourth of what you can get out of like a few solar panels like it is it's not efficient way to produce energy and the amount of pollution it produces is just astronomically higher like this incinerator is dirtier than the top four coal plants in maryland so it's absolutely not clean or renewable but it gets money for from clean and renewable credit, like tax credits, because of the way it's classified. And that's and that's obviously some corruption. Yeah. So there's been a fight throughout 2020 to end the contract with this wheelabrator incinerator, and the outgoing mayor um, just extended it for 10 more years instead of allowing the new mayor to look at the contract and say, hey, maybe we want to do something different. He said, no, we're going to keep this for 10 more years. Oh, he got that one at the buzzer. 
Right. Um, and the thing about this is that, you know, when we're talking about also economic justice, like the incinerator employs maybe 50 to 60 people. If we had gotten rid of the incinerator and transitioned toward a zero waste model of trash management, we could have created, you know, 1800 jobs versus 50 to 60. And those jobs could have come from places like South Baltimore, Sandtown, you know, where the incinerator primarily affects the air quality and where jobs are desperately needed. Like that's also where the housing crisis is worse, right? And I also read that it's not even just Baltimore City's trash. It's also like Howard County and Anne Arundel County. So I, at least, I don't know how like that all, how that functions out, how like the red tape that they go through to that, but it doesn't seem fair to me that the, the Baltimore City communities have to suffer from Howard County and Anne Arundel County's trash. You know what I mean? So that should be their problems to figure out. Like you, like that's, that's causing health damage to, to, um, Baltimore City residents from, and yeah. that trash is coming from miles and miles away. Places that, places that people in Baltimore City might never even be, might never even go to. Yeah. And I think that gets back Absolutely. to the point of how like interconnected those issues are, right? Cause it's like, we have to tackle economic inequality at the same time as environmental inequality because they are so heavily intertwined. Corporations and land use and stuff like that targets the places where people are the least likely to fight back or the least able to like most politically disenfranchised communities. Um, and then it, it essentially exacerbates all the issues that already exist in those communities in terms of economic inequality. So um, yeah, I think that's a really great you know connection between how these are very much intertwined and there are solutions that can address both at the same time. Absolutely. And I mean, let's remember that, um, you know, South, the area around um, like Westport and, you know, the communities in South Baltimore that are right by the incinerator are predominantly black and low income. So, um, you know, of course, throughout our country, um, disproportionately um, landfills and, you know, toxic industrial sites are placed near um, black and low income communities. And, you know, that's that's why it's called environmental racism, because you wouldn't find those polluting industries in wealthy white neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, we unfortunately have just like decided that those communities are disposable and that's what we're organizing against. And yeah. a Green New Deal absolutely needs to be investing in those communities that have been marginalized first. I, I think, again, like I think just one of the biggest challenges with uh especially environmental stuff is like Baltimore is one of the most dangerous cities in, in, in the nation. It's like when people have to worry about their livelihood on a day-to-day -day basis, they're not thinking about the long-term consequences. That's stuff like an incinerator or, or, um, the, or the Harbor has on their health. You know what I mean? I, and I don't really think there's much of an answer to it. It's like, like they're all intertwined. Like do you fight the, you have to fight the crime. You have to, you have to, um, fix the lead poisoning that that is a proponent that's adding to the crime but at the same time it's hard to get people to care about the lead poisoning it's hard to get people to care about the incinerator when they have to deal with uh the city and and what it throws at them at on a daily basis um so it's just it's just a super difficult problem and i don't think really people have too much of an answer for it and but it that leads to people who that leads to people who who are who have right. the ability to to fight it such as yourselves no. uh, but it, it's such a big hill to, to climb up, you know what I mean? It's 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 kind of just unlucky. <laughs> well, I mean, our hope is that, you know, we're, you know, bringing more attention to these issues. And I mean, definitely like Sunrise's mission is really to build 
popular public support for a Green New Deal and for, you know, acting on the urgency of the climate crisis and also tackling racial and income inequality at the same time. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned earlier, like we're just so used to having a government that doesn't invest in, you know, our communities and will never ever like act on the climate crisis and just instead hands out, uh, you know, uh, helps out fossil fuel executives and, you know, corporations instead of the people. And we, we really want to try to change the, um, the political common sense in our country. We want people to realize that like our government should work for us and we should actually be able to influence our government to, um, instead of, you know, investing in the police, investing in military, um, investing in, uh, you know, huge tax cuts for corporations and, you know, the, those on the top, like we, we want our government to actually be taking the solutions that exist. Um, you know, we know how to, um, you know, remove lead from old homes. We, we know how to install solar panels and wind and um, we know how to compost and recycle. Like, why aren't we actually investing in implementing these solutions and, you know, stop, like we, we can stop polluting our communities um, and we just need to actually like build the political will for that. Right. I mean, just building off that, Evelyn, like the, there is certainly one way to look at it, which is like, this is so many huge problems. Like this is an insurmountable hill, but you know, the other way to look at that is like, wow, there's a lot of work to do here. Like this could mean a lot of jobs and a lot of investment in the community. And we could give people stake in their neighborhoods and we could have a much greener city as a result. Yeah, and just kind of building on that again, I think the thing that I love about Sunrise that really drew me to it is that it is this really amazing intersectional movement that's really pushing people who have historically been left out of the political process into the position to have some political stake. And so like people of color, young people, environmentalists, people that, you know, have always had to be kind of fighting the status quo, coming together and, you know, making a really united movement around it has been really, really uh, enthusiastic, I guess, for me, like it's made things more optimistic i'm less terrified about things like the climate crisis as a result because you can see how lots of people are realizing that these are problems and that's like the first step to really making that change and building the movement behind it so is there kind of like a divide in the democratic party in baltimore because like the democratic party at least like currently is looked as like the party that that strives for like the environment uh, as compared to like a, a trump republican party but obviously baltimore is in the state that it is and it's pretty much it's all it's all ran by Democrats to an extent. Um, like you guys back certain certain politicians. Like, is there can do you guys see a divide between the the Democratic Party and Baltimore? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that this divide. Thanks, Evelyn. I think this divide also exists nationally, right? Like the the difference between the AOC Democrats and the Clinton Democrats, and this exists in Baltimore too. So. I mean, more establishment Democrats who have spent years advocating for the status quo and who continue to funny money into, you know, paying for more expensive police cars and more weapons for the police versus Democrats like Brendan Scott, who have said, hey, we need to get lead out of all these houses in West Baltimore because kids are dying from lead poisoning, right? Kids are growing up with learning defects from lead poisoning. So there's, that definitely exists. Definitely. And it's just all about trying to push the Democrats who are interested in making meaningful change into the right places and trying to put pressure on the Democrats who aren't interested in that into being interested in that or just 
getting them out of office. And that's why our organizing really focuses on pushing Democrats rather than Republicans. We've largely just ridden off the Republican Party because they don't even claim to care about these issues. Um, whereas Democrats claim to care about the environment and they care to claim about, you know, the people um, and racial justice and economic justice. But most of the time, establishment Democrats don't actually, um, you know, back the, up the, their, uh, their words with action. So that's why we try to hold them accountable. Um, whereas, you know, we kind of just want Republicans out of power because they suck. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really heard of any Republican movements in Baltimore at all. So, uh, <laughs> other, other than Clasic, yeah, other than Clasic, which is, which is, well, she doesn't even live here. She doesn't live there. <laughs> Didn't yeah. even live in the seventh congressional district. She, she thought she she thought she could win off the uh, Democrats aren't doing anything, so vote me. Which I mean, who knows? But like you said, there's like are they? I don't. To me, I get frustrated with 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 um, party politics because there can be a divide within the party. It, you know what I mean? I again like the the incinerator deal. How like the last mayor just got that buzzer beater in <laughs> right before right before new dude came in like. Stuff like that's just. Wait, he wasn't even elected, though. He. He wasn't even elected. That's yeah. correct. That's another reason why he... it's just. Was he a Democrat? He was a Democrat. Oh man, he he might be under he might be undercover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean yeah. that's really the thing. Like in our one party city, um, you know, of course that the real mayoral race was the primary because. Um, you know, that's when all of these Democrats are running on, you know, slightly different platforms, you know, all under the Democratic Party. But, um, you know, we really saw huge differences between uh, the candidates. And we just really saw a candidate that we could support in Scott. And we're really, really happy that um, we were able to get involved in this campaign and uh, that he won. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, this is like the first mayoral campaign. I mean, I was too young for the other ones, uh, for when the, the, the one, the last mayor who was, uh, I forget why she got kicked out. She was, hers was something Catherine to do with, Pugh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> she, yeah, she was, um, doing some shady backroom deals for her books and, um, wasn't she stealing gift cards? That. No, that was Sheila. That was, that was Dixon. No, that was Sheila. Yeah, yeah, she did. Okay. Yeah. She ran again. Okay. Yeah. See, we got some characters. But um, <laughs> but that that just shows how much like the power that the, who has the money and what they can do with the money and the pe like even people who want something completely different than what their team wants or like what other people on their team wants they have to stay with that team because of the money and these are problems that that I mean I guess environmental justice isn't like a, oh I I want to give my money to that like that that's not really you know what I mean like people who have the money that's not gonna make them more money to to a certain extent like that's not something that people get excited about and that and that's the that's the sad truth you know what i mean so it it just seems like a real uphill battle especially especially with a, a divided democratic party in, in baltimore city yeah well i mean to be go ahead evelyn um i mean you know really all politicians will talk about you know wanting to uh you know create more jobs you know we're here in america of course we're we're obsessed with you know work ethic and you know uh building yourself up by Bring yourself up by your bootstraps and you know like hard work and 
um, really like the Green New Deal is all about like job creation. Like there, there is so much work to be done to, um, you know, remove toxins from our communities to um, stop emitting fossil fuels um, and like just, you know, roll out clean energy nationwide and especially in Baltimore. And like that's that's just millions of good jobs that we can create. And we also need to make sure that, um, you know, those are good jobs. Those are unionized jobs, high wage jobs, they're good people who need them. How would the, how would like a Green New Deal Baltimore like how would that how would that look different than from today? I mean, obviously the incinerator would be gone, but I mean we can't really can we? Is there really any place to put like solar? I mean, not solar panels, uh, windmills. Uh, I mean, is it? Are we talking about just massive solar panels on top of every building we can find? What would it, what would it look like to like replace what's in Baltimore? Cause that that's the only um, like that's the biggest that's the biggest when I hear Green New Deal and then the biggest counterpoint is like yes like that's good get rid of fossil fuels but what's going to replace that for one and then also two that's going to put they always say it's going to put the u.s behind economically because we're going to be we're going to be fossil fuel dependent because cars are still going to need to run on fossil fuel and, and stuff like that so in my mind <laughs> so when i think about a green new deal and what that would look like in baltimore just to address the first part of your question i'm thinking about revamping of the public transportation system. So building the red line, increasing the amount of buses that we have and making sure that those buses are electric, you know, expanding the metro, if that is a viable thing that we can do. Um, finishing the, you know, the Baltimore urban tree project to get like all of these trees planted across Baltimore to reduce the um, urban heat island effect. So the city is not as hot in the summer. So connecting the city so people can move easily around, um, increasing the amount of trees, increasing access to green space. The great thing about renewable energy projects like solar and wind is that these projects can be based inside of communities. You can put solar panels now pretty much anywhere. The technology has advanced so, so much over the past 10 years. And to be quite honest with you, by the middle of the next decade, Fossil fuels like natural gas, oil, and coal are going to be unprofitable because it's so difficult to get to them now. Like the extraction process is so expensive that it's just flat out not profitable. So renewable energy is cheaper, it's more efficient, and it can be controlled locally. So there's already like several... Um, there's several companies in Baltimore, op, do like like Neighborhood Sun, who do community solar projects. So if you sign up for these, you're getting your electricity from solar farms in Baltimore County and in Baltimore City. And this doesn't even necessarily mean that you have to have the solar panels on your house. It's just coming from another place. You know, it would mean tons more jobs to upgrade our electrical grid, to implement a zero waste framework for Baltimore City so we don't have to incinerate our trash or put it in the landfill, which is almost at capacity already, right? So that's tons of jobs in processing waste, recycling, composting. So it'd be a huge program that would boost employment, better what our communities look like, and clean up our air and water. But to me, that's what a Green New Deal would look like for Baltimore City. And who, who's fighting against it? <laughs> the inertia question. of um, <laughs> you know our current political establishment um definitely fossil fuel executives um certainly bresco i mean they've 
Oh yeah, they sued the city for, yeah, um, for trying to, you know, clean our air, like the Clean Air Act that Baltimore City passed in 2018 um, was basically overturned in court because Brusco was like, we don't want to uphold this. And now we don't want to. Yeah. And and that's that's where that difficulty of awareness comes in, because it's just these big corporations are able to do whatever because the the amount of people who are even somewhat aware of the problem who who would who would want who want the, who would want this green green new deal whose neighborhoods it would impact directly they're not able to voice their opinion because it it's it's not the biggest thing on their plate right now you know what i mean then that's those corporations are able right. to do that so I, certainly one part of it is the, the the huge vested money that the these established corporations have and we know that they give a lot of money to electoral campaigns um, that helps some of those established establishment Democrats sort of keep the status quo. So that that is one problem. And then the other problem is education. You know, if people don't know that zero waste or that solar panels are or solar energy is an option for them, then they're not going to go out and get it right. Like this needs to be readily available to people. And part of that comes through education that the city needs to do. So if we were to roll out a zero waste, the city would need to send out a lot of pamphlets to people living in neighborhoods where this was going to start to be like, look, this is how the new system is going to work. And that education has just largely been absent. And nonprofits like Sunrise and the Sierra Club and Blue Water Baltimore have sort of had to step up and fill the gap. But when you have like tons of different organizations doing smaller scale education, you know, like in different parts of the city, that's not super comprehensive. So we need a comprehensive system in order to make this really effective. I, I mean, most articles I read and and from what I know, like I, I see, I see the awareness in in the in the white neighborhoods, like like Fells, like Fed Hill and uh, Fells Point and Locust and Locust Point, and like Hamden and places like that. But I don't, yeah. I don't really see any of the uh, any of the awareness or like it doesn't seem like anybody's any like reporters or anybody's giving the giving the mic to people from Bur- Brooklyn or people from uh, Westport. And I I think again like the awareness needs to be there. Like somebody needs to push and put an effort in to get those people from sound Sandtown, like to get involved in stuff like this because it impacts them the most. You know what I mean? Like I see the white neighborhoods are, are obviously involved in it, but I, I don't see anybody giving the, giving the pen and paper or the microphone to the, to the, to the uh, black neighborhoods. I, I, I totally, <laughs> I totally hear what you're saying. Um, I want to push back on that just a little bit, not to contradict you, but the, so in Baltimore, the movement for zero, I know I talk about zero waste a lot, but the movement to transition to zero waste has largely been spearheaded by communities in Brooklyn and Curtis Bay and South Baltimore who live with this high concentration of waste processing facilities and the incinerator because they are frankly tired of living in proximity to all these highly polluted sites um and the south baltimore land trust along with a ton of different communities down there have done a lot of work working with fair develop fair development baltimore um as well as the office of sustainability to just say like to put together a zero waste plan for baltimore city and they actually did come out with a comprehensive plan for baltimore um, that the new mayor says he's fully on board for. 
Um, but then we had the incinerator contract get re-signed. So the, it's it's 100% true that these white neighborhoods get a lot more resources from the city and that the black and black and brown neighborhoods often get far fewer. But it's also true that there's a, quite a lot of activism and organizing happening in these black and brown communities saying, look, like, this, this, this is not okay. Like, we should not have to be a dumping ground. Like, these facilities should not be concentrated in our neighborhoods. And here's a plan for the entire city of Baltimore in which we could eliminate the need for these facilities altogether. Now, with stuff like yeah, this... Oh, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, yeah, I mean, we really appreciate you inviting us onto your podcast, but definitely next time um, you should invite folks from uh, South Baltimore Community Land Trust, Free Your Voice, United Workers, um, who have been doing, you know, like, really, like, most of the organizing around, um, you know, shutting down the incinerator and transitioning to zero waste for years. And, oh, yeah, um, no, you know, definitely more, we're, more you know, very well connected anymore. with them, <laughs> um, you know, we, we really do want to uplift their voices. Oh, yeah, um, of course. So, like, we're super happy that, like, Shoshanda Campbell from South Baltimore Community Land Trust is on uh, Brandon Scott's transition team, and we really can't wait to see uh, what she does uh, to... Uh, put us on the path for zero waste. Oh yeah, no, nah, definitely. I would definitely love to reach out to to any any of those groups, and they they're more than welcome on here. Um, but my my next question was, um, now nah, I know like stuff like education and like school systems, like the money for for the schools come from property taxes of the neighborhoods around them. That is the same like for projects like you guys work on and stuff like that. So is there any is there any effort to change that? Because to me, that's one of the most destructive and destructive systems that's ever been set up like why would the why would public schools that's the schooling curriculum is the same for schools in maryland but the schools get different money based on the property taxes so obviously the poor kids are going to stay poor because their educational their education is not offered the same they don't get the same access to resources and these neighborhoods don't get the same access to resources as well is there any effort i mean this is this is a question probably unrelated but do you, do you guys see that as a problem as well Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, our <laughs> isn't like entirely like, um, you know, we don't really do a ton of organizing around yeah, like, you yeah, know, I was about schools to say, I was about education, to but, but it's really all connected, you know, like, um, you know, just black and brown communities are systematically underinvested in, in education and, um, you know, like environmental pollution um, and resources, access to jobs, access to public transit, um, you know, safe housing, um, you know, really everything. And so like, that's, that's why like a Green New Deal needs to um, prioritize communities that have been underinvested in and absolutely like education is, is a huge part of the Green New Deal. We absolutely need to be paying teachers, you know, good wages, we need to make sure that um, every child in our country gets, you know, access to a good education and a good free public education. And, um, you know, that's, that's how we're going to have a future. Yeah, at least at least when it comes to politics, that's probably that's the number one problem I have. Like, I, if you can't think, if you don't think that's evil, like, you're going to, like, the kids get different money based on, like, obviously, like, if they have poor parents and you're going to tell them they get less opportunity at school, uh, that's always been, like, my number one problem with the world. I punch the arrow about that on a daily basis. But, like, it's all connected and it, it definitely, the, the awareness needs to be there. And it's, it's hard to get to that. But now, as far as, like, as far as the harbor goes, like a lot of people, what were the numbers you were telling me earlier, Sam? 
One second, I gotta try to. He find said. It. He said over. Oh. What was it like? Over a million cigarette butts in a two mile, two mile radius, right? Yeah, it was like a couple hundred thousand plastic bags over a couple million cigarette butts, and they were saying the cost of it would be twenty to thirty million dollars to meet the requirements of uh, uh, of the improvement of the harbor. Yeah, I the harbor is like the harbor is like what the biggest tourist attraction in in Baltimore, and to me it's wild that the the politicians don't have don't seem like they're they're super uh, enthusiastic about saving that or stopping any of that. I what were really... those numbers you said? Twenty to thirty million to clean up the harbor? Is that what you were saying? Yep. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, no, that's what I'm saying. Like that is. That doesn't seem like a lot, especially they like if that's the biggest say... tourist attraction. Right. They can't say they don't have the money because that Bresco contract that we were talking about, that's $10 million every year for the next 10 years. Okay. So they can't say that they don't have the money to clean up the harbor if we can spend $100 million on an incinerator over 10 years. This is total bullshit. Absolutely. And like, just imagine like what the harbor would be like if um, if you could actually go swimming in it. Yeah. Like, just how much that could you know increase like you know tourism to our city. I could die peacefully <laughs> after swimming the harbor. My life would be complete. I wouldn't need anything else. If I live to see <laughs> that, to I'll die that. the next day. Once upon a time, when I was a kid, I did swim in the harbor, and I don't have a third arm, so maybe it's not that bad. But uh, I'm not going to do that again until the authorities say that it's safe, and hopefully by 2030, that's the goal, right? But maybe James can talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> yeah, I think that just in general, when you think about these like more like you're saying environmentalist type of issues, there isn't as much mobilization behind it because when you think about the people who are most directly stakeholders of policies that are going to change the harbor. Those are people that live in the city. And those are people, like you said, who have so much more on their plate already in terms of what their policy can And so I think one of the best things about the New Deal is it is bridging that gap between, okay, the environment is our one choice or the economy. We can't have either. You know, it's really saying we can reinvigorate our economy. We can invest in our public sectors. We can build great jobs that solve these environmental problems. And it's not just some green issue. It's not just some, you know, tree hugger issues. You know, these are issues that actually affect everybody and they're worth investing in. And, you know, like I said, building that that large, you know, movement behind it is I think how we're going to get those types of solutions. But until we recognize the interconnectedness, I think that's why you don't see a lot of push for, you know, genuine push or active push, you know, to really actually get changes for the harbor because it's a lot harder to get that when it's just the environmentalist type of people that are actually working. You need more people bought into that movement and you need to show that it is connected. So, um, again, I think that's why Green New Deal Baltimore is such a really, really almost revolutionary because it's taking all of these like preconceived notions of this is our issues, that's their issues, these are those issues, and it's showing how they're connected and how there can be solutions that solve them all together. Totally. And we often just kind of forget that um, us humans live in the environment and, you know, we. We're not going to have an economy if we don't have a planet to live on. Um, and, you know, the climate crisis, it's its not just about, um, you know, like polar bears dying and icebergs melting and coral reefs getting bleached. Like these are these are people's lives, people's homes. Um, you know, like Baltimore is expecting to see, you know, like sea level rise um, and, you know, waterfront uh, areas, you know, like getting uh, tidal, like increased tidal flooding. Um, and of course, uh, like black and brown neighborhoods in Baltimore are um, currently seeing like the hottest temperatures during the summer. Um, McElderry Park over in um, East Baltimore is the hottest 
neighborhood in Baltimore City, whereas the coolest neighborhood is over by um, Gwen's Falls and Lincoln Park um, over in like a very wealthy white neighborhood that has lots of tree canopy. Yeah, it's it's really not also out of the imagination that with the current level of sea level rise that we have projected over the next 30 years that if a hurricane was to come up and hit Baltimore, we would see massive devastation. And I know Baltimore is not really known for being hit by hurricanes, but if the climate continues to warm at the pace that it is currently warming, we're going to see hurricanes start moving farther and farther north up the eastern seaboard. And with that addition of sea level rise, like the it could start to become devastating for cities like DC and Baltimore and Boston who have harbors and who are right on the coast. So, you know, while, while we want to focus right now on the most immediate issues, like increasing tree cover, like moving to zero waste, like cleaning up the harbor, we're also have our eye on these longer term issues where like sea level rise and flooding, because this is going to be a reality for us in the 40. Yeah. Also, don't forget that the incinerators are right on the water. Like Curtis yeah. Bay is totally going to be underwater in, you know, 50, 100 years. And uh, that's not going to be good for anybody. You don't want all that mercury in the water. <laughs> really yeah. don't. Although maybe it would finally shut down the incinerators for good if they're underwater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just I was just thinking, um, like, we don't, there's not really, doesn't seem like to be an example to follow um, Baltimore seems to be a unique city. For one, it's it's decently small, and for two, the uh, the location of it is uh, there's not really other cities like it. I guess DC, but um, most cities are either just in the middle of the land or like they're on a, they're on like the ocean kind. Of. We're just we're tucked up all the way at the top of the Chesapeake, Chesapeake Bay almost. Um, so we don't really have like there's no there's no like other example of oh this is what they're doing that we can point to and follow. Like it's kind of just trailblazing at this point and and trying to make make what we can. Well, I think the cool thing about Baltimore being a unique city is that we're also going to have unique solutions to these problems. Like, it's very good to be able to look at, like, a city like San Francisco who has, like, an excellent recycling, composting program and be like, okay, like, what are good things working there that we could take example of? But it wouldn't work to just take San Francisco's model of zero waste and apply it onto Baltimore because, like you said, Baltimore is a totally different city. And what's cool about the Green New Deal is that it really advocates for that local approach to these issues. Like if you can localize the solutions, it's going to be so much more effective than just taking a cur- a blanket policy and putting it all over the whole U- United States. Yeah, definitely. For sure. That's exactly what I was getting at. Like Baltimore is definitely unique and definitely great city in America. <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to need a, we're going to need a solution that's just for us. And I feel, I feel like, I definitely see more awareness now like I just I just stumbled upon your guys's page um a few months ago and I I immediately reached out cuz uh I didn't I wasn't super aware for one uh I'm trying to get more aware of the environment obviously this is the first time like I said you're the first group I found and I immediately wanted to reach out and get get knowledge and talk to and have a conversation um but now I'm definitely going to be more have my eyes open for others and like definitely let me know the the ones that you said earlier um so I can definitely get in contact with them. But I, I feel like it is, especially in today's political climate, like you people hear Green New Deal a lot. And at least for me, like I said, I'm not super familiar with it. Um, I've read a little bit of it. I know I know the basics of it. And I know the counterpoint that everybody says. But I think everybody, like, this is a this is a project, or at least the movement, environmental movements are, are movements that help everyone. 
but it it really it's really you as an individual that needs to like put the effort in you know what i mean like people you can't rely on other people to do it for you because it's a it's a joint venture it, re- it like it really is more than, more than other movements at least that's how i view it like because you need to you need to be self-aware to for one just i mean even small things like stop littering but even even beyond that just like educating yourself and then eventually helping to hoping to educate others and that's exactly what we're doing with the podcast now so we can other people get this information well absolutely i mean that's kind of like the problem that um you know the way we've approached climate change action in the past is we've always put it the responsibility on individuals like oh you want to stop climate change well you need to drive less and you need to like turn off your lights when really like we know that it's not individuals who are responsible for the climate crisis it's fossil fuel executives um you know with covid and absolutely everything shutting down um people thought that that would be you know, a huge way to reduce emissions, but emissions only dropped about 17%, I believe. Um, you know, it's like a hundred corporations are responsible for something like 70% of the world's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Like it's it's really corporations and like we, we need collective government action to actually solve the climate crisis. It's not going to be individuals. And even now, even now that there's more awareness about climate change, there's not as many climate change deniers. It's really not, you know, an accept- a socially acceptable political position anymore. Now you see, um, you know, companies like Shell and BP, all the fossil fuel companies are trying to go out and greenwash and say like, oh yeah, we're lowering our greenhouse gas emissions. We're gonna, you know, be net zero emissions by 2050, you know, only in their operations. They're still gonna be, you know, drilling for oil and selling oil, which is, you know, what is responsible for the climate crisis. And we see this at a local level in Baltimore. One of the points that, you know, Wheelabrator, the owner of the incinerator, likes to make a lot is, oh, well, you know, the the real polluter in Baltimore is all the cars we have on the road. You know, people need to stop driving so much. But if we shut down Wheelabrator, that would be taking, it would be equivalent to taking half the cars in Baltimore off the road if we just shut down Wheelabrator. And when you think about, you know, what which of those two options is easier, well, it, it's definitely easier to shut down one incinerator than to ask half the people of Baltimore to stop driving when we don't have a real public transportation system. Which we so, also need to invest in, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it just goes to show that, like, the fossil fuel industry and, you know, a lot of these companies, they have a very long history of gaslighting when it comes to public health and trying to push the responsibility onto the individual when, you know, science has long supported this, you know, in individuals cannot better the air quality. Like that, that's not flat out, not the solution. Like individuals, you know, recycling is not going to fix the problem when half the city doesn't even have bins to put their recycling in. This is a systemic issue, and in order to address it, we need system-wide solutions. So it, it's really just, it's really just not enough to say that as an individual, I'm going to drive less or I'm always going to recycle because it, the issue is just so much bigger than. That. And certainly, we should all be doing our part. Um, you know, be responsible in your own personal actions, but really the way that we're actually going to tackle the climate crisis is by organizing together and actually changing the way that we run our society and run our economy. What are the uh, main problems with the uh, transit 
in Baltimore. I mean, I I haven't really done too much riding public transit since I was in like high school. So I mean, I didn't really have com any complaints back then, but I was also ignorant. Um, and also, Baltimore's not too big of a city. Um, like so, whether like whether the uh, problems for one, then like whether whether it's like you guys envision as like an ideal as ideal future. Well, I think the first project that they would need to start back up is the red line. So back when Obama was president in his second term, we actually, the state of Maryland actually got a huge package of money to invest in public transportation. And part of that money was supposed to go to building the red line. If you guys aren't familiar with what that is, essentially it was a metro line that was supposed to connect east and west Baltimore and meet up with the current metro line we have that comes down from Hunt Valley all the way down to where Camden Yards is. So it would have made a T of public transportation in Baltimore, really connecting all points of the city. Governor Hogan decided that Baltimore didn't need that money for public transportation and the whole project was canceled. Um, what they did with that money instead was build more highways, um, which is completely the opposite direction we need to move if we had a good system of public transportation in Baltimore, a lot less people would be driving. So that would be fewer emissions. Um, if we had good bike lanes in all parts of the city, fewer people would be driving. So again, that would be fewer emissions. So it's really about making our streets safe for bikers and also making them, opening them up to public transportation. We also really need to, you know, gain local control over our public transit system as well. Uh, right now, it's controlled by the state of Maryland. And so if the state doesn't want to do something, then we don't get it. Whereas, you know, of course, Baltimoreans saw how beneficial the red line would have been for our city. And then Hogan just decided that he didn't like the, the uprisings after Freddie Gray's murder and um, thought that Baltimore didn't need this public transit. Um, and that was just a really, really racist, terrible decision on his part. And he returned so many millions of federal dollars um, just because he didn't want our city to have, you know, nice things. And really, um, you know, light rail development um, really spurs further development and investment. Um, you know, if you build a, a rail um, line, you're going to see transit-oriented development around those stations in a way that you don't really see um, when you add more bus lines. Bus lines tend to follow development, whereas uh, rail, uh, rail lines uh, spur development. So, you know, that would be yeah. another additional benefit to investing in, in more light rail projects in our city. We also see that, you know, I mean, just take, for example, Amazon, when it was looking for a new site, they were looking for what cities had good public transportation so that their workers could get to the warehouse to work. Um, Baltimore doesn't have good transportation. I mean, we already had an Amazon warehouse, so we weren't a candidate. But I mean, imagine if a company like Apple wanted to put a plant here. I mean, I would not be in favor of a plant that was not electrical and that was in putting emissions out there. But as far as jobs go, like, Public transportation is absolutely critical to bringing in jobs. It's it's absolutely essential, and we just don't really have that robust transportation system. 
And the transit system that we do have is currently uh, really focused in the white L and not as much in the black butterfly. Like, you know, think about the the free to ride uh, Charm City uh, circulator that all runs in the white L um, and the red line specifically would have really connected east and west Baltimore, um, you know, where, um, you know, folks in the black butterfly could actually get around. And, um, you know, those are also the areas where uh, car ownership is um much lower than in uh, whiter and uh, richer areas of Baltimore. Something about like a third of Baltimoreans don't actually own cars. And that uh, that statistic goes up to like 50% in some parts of uh, Baltimore. So and you know, like that's, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and that's really strongly correlated with the um, employment numbers and unemployment numbers in places where you see more cars now currently, the unemployment numbers are a little bit better. And that is, surprise, surprise, if you own a car, it's easier to get to your job. But if we had vi valid public transportation options, people wouldn't necessarily need a car to get to their job. And it would be much easier for them to go out and do interviews or go out and get a job. Yeah, I used to take the bus to work and it would take me about an hour and a half each way. And it's a 20 minute drive. It's ridiculous. So that's a huge barrier for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. The bus, uh, I haven't been on the bus since they changed the routes, actually maybe one time, but the bus ain't really fun. Actually, the bus is a fun place to be, but it's, it's not fun when, <laughs> it's not fun when it's cold outside, you gotta get to work. Um, definitely not. And the bus just and, never comes. And, and, and when you need, <laughs> and when you need to get on more than one bus, you don't even uh, go to work. Yeah, nah, that's not good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so they want they want build yeah. a, the red line. They were gonna build a light rail. Mm -hmm. That was the plan. Yes, second, and we secondary still, light rail. We're hoping to see it still. Um, you know, let's see if we can reverse that decision. You know, either through taking back control of our uh, public transit system and creating a regional transit authority that can actually make better decisions for our city. Um, you know, led by actual public transit riders uh, that actually represent um, our transit community here um, in Baltimore. Um, or, you know, like another way we, the red line shouldn't be dead. You know, just because one governor made a shitty decision doesn't mean that, um, you know, it can never come here. We, we absolutely need it here. And I, I think there's definitely like a lot of political will for it, but, you know, we definitely need to push it over the top and actually make it happen. I would feel, I would feel like there would be Obviously, there's not, but I feel like there would be more willingness to do it, especially when you see, I think it's called, like, the Purple Line in, like, uh, PG County that, that that they're doing, like, a lot of building for and construction for now. I would see... I would, well, of I, course, that's where Hogan's, uh, you know, home properties are, and he really wanted to service those areas and I, not see, Baltimore City. That, that well, Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense, but I, I don't know why that wouldn't, inc like, encourage him to do that other places as well, but... Well, there... There are a lot of racial undertones to the transportation systems or transportation decisions that are made at a state level, which is why it's really important for Baltimore to be able to take control locally of our transportation system. Like as Evelyn was referencing earlier, one of the reasons why the red line never got invested in with that money from Obama was because the Freddie Gray riots happened. And I think Governor Hogan was imagining like you know, if, if I had this line, if I had a metro line from West Baltimore to East Baltimore, imagine how many more people could have gotten on that line and come downtown for those demonstrations, right? 
So yeah, there, there, there's a lot of a lot of racist undertones that are at play, and by localizing control of public transportation, we could, we could work to eliminate that. I mean, I don't know about that though. Isn't PG County like one of the blackest counties? Uh, yes, I believe yeah. so. Yes, it is. But Baltimore yeah, so City also undertones. has. Baltimore I mean, City has. I mean, Baltimore's also when you look at the demographic, but... exactly. And the red line would have connected a lot of those black neighborhoods to the predominantly white neighborhoods. So it would have been a step in undoing some of the the redlining of Baltimore's neighborhoods that happened um, a long time ago. And we hope that the red line can still be built and you know work to undo a lot of that. And if you're looking for other podcast guests, um, you should probably reach out to Samuel Johnson of um, the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition. He's a good friend of ours, and he does a lot of organizing around improving public transit here. I'm definitely um, going to be with... asking you for like 80 names after this podcast. <laughs> we got those names <laughs> for you. But, <laughs> but um, Sam, Abenezer, you have any uh, other questions? Uh, Abenezer, do you have any questions at all? Because you have said, said one thing, but... Yeah, it's kind of bugging me that I've just been quiet, but I'm pretty new to everything. I was just taking things in. Um, I agree with a lot of what you say. I think it's inevitable. There needs to be some sort of restructuring. Um, And then, again, like, I've never really met anyone with bad intentions. Everyone, like, makes a good case for whatever they're advocating for. Um... I uh, completely agree that, like, there needs to be, um, like, an awareness uh, development. Like, conscious. Just, a conscious yeah, conscious. A conscious uh, move towards, like, just awareness of everything in general. Where are all these people um, that, like, own the, the incinerator? Where do they live at? Like, Australia. Oh, man. Yeah, that, that's not even in this. That's not even in this country. Yeah, they not yeah. not next to the incinerator. <laughs> yeah, they for sure, don't live there. Isn't that crazy? Like how like twenty seven k a day or something? Uh, some of our comms team were uh, really looking into the finances behind uh, Wheelabrator Technologies, and um, yeah, it's a they make bank off of polluting South Baltimore, and it's really sick. And it was sold, right? There, there are like. Americans that originally owned it. It was out of like New Jersey or something. And then uh, it sold at some point. I briefly looked into that. But um, isn't it crazy how money could just like muffle like just everything out? Like, yeah, bro. I ain't heard the word muffle in a minute, but yeah, bro. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's why like really like a big thing that we're organizing for is. Uh, fighting the influence of uh, fossil fuel money in our uh, in our political system. We um, one of the major things that we do is we try to get politicians to commit to not taking contributions of more than $200 from fossil fuel executives, lobbyists or um, yeah, executives and lobbyists basically like um, stakeholders. You know, I guess the word you're looking for. Stakeholders. I mean, obviously, like the rank and file uh, workers can donate, you know, whatever they want to 
um, to politicians. But, you know, we, we really don't want that overt influence of fossil fuel money because they love donating to political campaigns. And, you know, that's that's how they've gotten their way in, um, in our political system. And really, like, one of the huge steps to actually, like, <laughs> taking back control and reducing their influence is to not have them buying our, our politicians. I definitely yeah. agree with that. And like I said, it's inevitable. Like, it either is going to change now or they're going to die off and and uh, something's going to happen. I, I'm just worried that the, the communities that have been historically disenfranchised, when the restructuring occurs, they're, they're still left as the disenfranchised groups. You know, like, that, that's, that's what worries me the most. That's why we absolutely need to be fighting for, um, you know, equity in, in a Green New Deal. Like, Green New Deal cannot just be investing in the White L in Baltimore. It cannot be investing in America's wealthiest communities. Um, you know, it can't just be rich people putting solar powder, power, solar panels on their own homes. Like, we need actual federal investment in historically underserved, marginalized communities. Yeah, that, that brings and, a real good point. Um, you guys are like are in contact with like the dude who handled the red line, or you like you know who whoever that is. You, he needs to change the name because like Baltimore is like the first city to implement redlining, so they need to they need to they're up to some yeah, bad mojo with that name. They should probably change that. Uh, <laughs> you're you're probably right about that one. Um, I wanted to speak for a hot second about like some of the the money in politics and the fossil fuel money one of the cool things that baltimore as a city actually just did within the past five years is pass a bill to establish a fair elections fund so and a couple other cities around the country have done this but essentially what it does is create an option for publicly funded election so candidates that opt in to use the fair elections model they pledge not to take contributions of a certain amount from you know like fossil fuel companies corporations and all of these other interests and they pledge to get 80 to 90 percent of their donations from individuals of under a certain amount so what that does in reality is it forces people running for office to not campaign for like millions of dollars from one corporation, but instead to go out into communities and try to solicit donations from the people that they're actually gonna be representing in order to run for office on the will of the people that they're representing. So that, that was a huge win for Baltimore and getting money into that fair elections fund, possibly by taking some of it out of the police budget would be a huge step in the right direction to electing you know, a new a new set of representatives that really stand for the people and what the people want. So that there is some good news on the horizon when it comes to money and politics, at least for Baltimore. Sam, you got any? Uh... I was wondering, do you guys have any thoughts on uh, nuclear energy? <laughs> That's a good one. Um. I would say that Sunrise Movement as a whole doesn't exactly like have a firm position on that. Um, I would say most of us are not a fan of it. Um, you know, we we really see that uh, through energy efficiency, um, when solar and geothermal, we can really meet our energy needs. Um, and you know, I personally believe that there's just too many risks in uh, nuclear energy. But um, 
No, but again, I'm not a nuclear scientist. I know there's a lot of advocates about it as well, but you know, why, why invest in that when we could, you know, invest in community controlled, uh, you know, solar and wind. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a risk assessment as well as an economic assessment. The way I look for it is you, you always want to try to be as efficient as you possibly can. Being efficient with your money, nuclear costs on a scale many, many times more than solar and wind. Just upfront costs of actually installing and building a nuclear facility. Then if you want to look at it from the risk assessment point of view, a nuclear facility is infinitely riskier than solar and wind because you have to have cooling towers and if we were to have a natural disaster you know in baltimore and we did install a nuclear plant it would start to look a lot like what happened in japan um Mm -hmm. with their fukushima power plant you know they had that tsunami the cooling got flooded the whole thing basically went to shit um and we're like, we're Baltimore, we're a city that's right on the water, we're looking at sea level rise over the next few years, nuclear starts to look like a really risky option, um, versus putting solar panels over vacant lots and, and helping to install wind off of our coast, you know, those are things that are a lot less risky, and a lot cheaper, and just, you know, better for the environment in the long run. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. Uh, just hearing the word nuke and then thinking about in my backyard doesn't sound good. Um, but um, I, I do, I do think that definitely the upfront cost is probably more. I think over time though, it might. I mean, I don't know, but what from what I've heard, because this is this is like another when I hear Green New Deal and then it's like, oh, why not nuclear? Like what I what I hear again is that like the like with advancements and stuff like that. It's just I feel like it would be different. I feel that's another thing like people can't really conceptualize what nuclear even is you know what i mean like that's that that's a word that the public can't really even understand and and that's the that's the divide you know what i mean uh they don't they don't really know what their options are because i i know i know for damn sure i don't really know what, i don't really know what that is you know what i mean um i can i know what solar is i know what the wind turbine is the sad thing is i, I can't really i i know what burning the trash and incinerating and stuff like that but i can't really conceptualize how that process works either other than just like oh trash goes in it gets burned but I know it's more complicated than that, um, and it it it's a uh, it's a lot uh, for people to get educated. But I think I think it's definitely what what life calls for. Yeah, I'm not sure that I mean, as Evelyn says, Sunrise doesn't have like a very definitive position on nuclear energy. Um, from a personal standpoint, I wouldn't necessarily advocate for immediately shutting down all nuclear plants we have in the United States. Um, because they are technically cleaner than coal and natural gas. So, But I also don't really think that we need to be building more of them when we know that solar and wind are so much more efficient and cheaper. Um, and they're going to continue to get more efficient and cheaper when with nuclear we've sort of, you know, we've hit a little bit of a scientific barrier with how much, you know, more efficient we can make that without dumping in billions of dollars. Um, and we don't need to dump billions of dollars into solar and wind because technology is is here and available and also i mean when you're talking about nuclear plants like those are you know very centralized sources of uh, power generation and you know with the increased natural disasters that we're going to see during climate change um you know we're just going to see more wildfires in the west more hurricanes in the south and you know in our area as well and um you know more extreme heat events uh flooding you know all of these all these disasters that climate change is going to create. Um, and, you know, that's just uh, 
more opportunities for um for you know things to go wrong with um you know electrical generation and if you have it more distributed if you have more solar panels and wind turbines you know like scattered throughout communities um that's just going to produce a more resilient power grid versus you know if you have one nuclear reactor um you know that's serving you know all the power needs of an entire region like what if something happens to that then suddenly where's your power absolutely a lot of process uh i hope it this is probably a dumb question <laughs> what happens on a windless cloudy day so that's actually a great question. <laughs> so one of the things that the Green New Deal advocates for is not just saying like, okay, let's get all of our energy from wind and solar, but like we need to upgrade our electrical grid. And part of updating our electrical grid is installing battery stations. So on days when it is sunny and windy, um, when you have the current high-tech technology, you can produce more power than you need to use. So what you do with that excess power, so to speak, is you store it in these batteries. So when you get to that cloudless or windless day, you still have that surplus of power readily available, and it can go back into homes and where it is needed. So yes, that's 100% a huge part of it. And it's not a dumb question. And then, like, so you gotta you gotta make these batteries too, which is like a whole nother environmental issue on its own. So it's like you're chopping off like one head of the hydra, and then two more grow like, um. What are you talking about, like lithium mining and stuff, Ebenezer? Yeah, exactly. I think that's where. Go ahead, Evelyn. Oh, Let's just say. like, I mean, a lot of the Green New Deal is um, just acknowledging that we don't exactly have all the answers for transitioning to 100% clean energy right now. So much of the Green New Deal is going to be investing in R&D um, to actually like find solutions uh, that are equitable and um, you know non-polluting to actually like transition over to clean energy. And yeah, absolutely, like you know polluting, uh, you know, other countries polluting Bolivia by, you know, mining all of their lithium is not um, what we're looking for either. So, yeah, no, it's definitely a good question. I mean, I don't know a ton about battery technology, um, but I know that there are, you know, other options being explored, like using salt to, um, you know, charge batteries and stuff. I, I don't even know. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe like scientists don't quite know yet either, but there are solutions out there. Yeah, and I was just going to add a really great book if you're interested in that specific part. There's a chapter in it about it. It's called Winning the Green New Deal. Um, and one of the chapters in there talks about how, okay, well, if we get rid of fossil fuel companies and we avoid all of these crises, we need to do so in a way that doesn't ensure that the next, you know, we don't have battery companies doing the same things are flying to us and doing all the horrible things that fossil companies have done over the years and stuff. So I think one of the other things that's talked about a lot is just how, you know, making more public investments and making general just you know corporations and things like that more accountable to the public is going to be a huge part of it as well because it's a lot easier for it to not be transparent if we don't have any accountability and, you know all those pushes and things like that so uh, another thing that's really interesting the concept of like circular economies and moving away from you know we make these things we break them and then we throw them away but rather we use them and reuse them and i think that's a lot of what the battery discussions that i've heard looking forward to talk about is how we can make these things but then they're not just 
you know, toxic waste and trash when we're done with them, but we actually create one that can be used and reused and stuff like that. Cool. Well, thank you all for coming. Any last questions or anybody, does anybody have any last questions or concerns or anything? Uh, just thank you so much again for bringing us on. It's been great chatting with all of you. Yeah, thank you, for, thank you so much for giving us your time. And uh, I'll definitely be in contact with uh, about the uh, anybody who you think would uh, have a good thing to say on, on the podcast. We're definitely looking for that. Fantastic. Get you that list uh, shortly. <laughs> thank you all so yeah. much. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, guys. Bye.